I want you to imagine one of those beautifully lazy Saturday mornings. You've worked all week, Monday all the way to Friday, and Saturday is the one day that you get to sleep just a little bit longer, right? And as you're lying in bed, relaxing, peaceful, you hear that knock on your door. You know who it is, Saturday morning. And I don't know how you feel about those early to mid-Saturday morning knocks on your door by the traveling Jehovah's Witness team that has been assigned to your geographic region, but there was a time in my life, during my early years of faith, that I loved when they knocked on my door. I, I even anticipated their knocks. I mean, where else could I, as a young believer, try to really test my biblical knowledge, try to fine-tune my argumentation skills? And I, I found that the, when I would invite them in and we would talk, I found that the relentless wrangling over doctrine and scripture and faith and issues of faith, I found it actually helpful to my growth as a believer. This won't be the case for everyone, nor am I recommending or suggesting that you follow my example here. But for me, it led to long hours of studying uh, their literature and studying their beliefs and weighing those beliefs against what I read in Scripture and trying to see if they fit and aligned they, and lined up. And I found that every single time I weighed one of their doctrines against the Word of God, their doctrine always fell way short. It got to the point when I was younger that they came almost every week, every Saturday. And as the visits kept coming, it, it, the people that visited me progressed from their less informed new recruits all the way up to their big guns. Eventually, they started sending the big guns to my house. And there's one occasion burnt into my memory. I don't know why this is burnt into my memory, but my father was sitting with us. He would never really join in. He... he kind of ignored the conversation, but this one morning he was, he was piqued by all the conversations. So he came and he sat with us and he tried to ask a bunch of questions, <laughs> but he was soundly ignored by the, the two guys that were there. And my father got so upset and the French came out. I don't know if you know that phrase, but the French, <laughs> the French in my father came out. And uh, the fact that they ignored him made him so angry that he pushed his chair away from the table and said, I don't need to sit here and be ignored by this Rick Moranis guy over here. And he threw the chair back in and ran away. Now, if you don't know who Rick Moranis is, he's an old Canadian movie star who thrives on playing the nerdy roles in such wonderful classics as Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or the hammed-up version of Canadian stereotypes in Strange Brew. And the, the guy that he said it to got... He got really upset, but he tried to hold it in so that he wouldn't make me get upset too. Needless to say, my father didn't join in on any more visits. But no matter, they kept coming. And no matter which JW came to the door, which Jehovah's Witness came to the door, their strategy always remained the same. Their strategy never shifted. It always began like this. And I, I'll, I'll use the past tense because I'm not quite as excited by any Saturday morning visits from Jehovah's Witnesses now as I used to be. So I don't know what they do now. But this is what they did during the time when they used to visit me. They'd come to my house and they'd ask me, 
or they'd, they'd point out the state of our world. Look at the world that we live in. Don't you see how terrible everything is? Aren't you petrified about everything that's going on in the world that you live in? Look at all of the turmoil. Look at all of the trouble, the upheaval, the disorder, the confusion. Look at it. This global suffering and distress and pain, it's only increasing. Every day it's getting worse. What are you going to do, Gino, they'd say. What are you going to do? How are you going to survive it all? And once they whip up, or once they had whipped up the appropriate amount of fear, now know this, fear is the powerful tool that all of these kind of organizations use. It's one of the the big weapons in their arsenal. Once they whip up that fear, bam, they hit you with it. The only place that you're going to find peace and safety from all of the trouble in the world when things go really bad is by aligning yourself with the Watchtower organization. That's their kind of head organization. And you do that by becoming one of Jehovah's Witnesses. You will be safe in the warm embrace of the Watchtower organization. And as I move from place to place, as I went on in life to different ministries, as I move from place to place, from city to city, the faces that knock, or the, 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 the fists that knock on the door and the faces that I open the door to are always different, but they always pluck the strings of the same song. The song of fear. The world is going down. Aren't you afraid? Let the watchtower protect you. Become a Jehovah's Witness. But as I looked at Scripture, I realized that Jesus himself warned that all of this would occur. Jesus told us in Matthew 25 that as we move closer to the end of the age, many would come claiming to be the Messiah. Many would come leading a multitude astray. As we move closer to the end of the age, we will hear of wars and we will hear of rumors of wars as nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and we will see an increase in famines and earthquakes in various places as well. And when it comes to the people of Christ, those who love Jesus, Christ told us that the nations will deliver us up to tribulation. The nations will put us to death. We will be hated by all for his namesake. And lawlessness will increase in the world as the love of many grows cold. And the answer to this, said Jesus, is not the watchtower. The answer to this is not our rising up to battle against this earthly descent into ever-increasing chaos. I mean, it's good. Get out there and do your best to stem this descent as a citizen of the world. But know that even the best of your labors is not what is necessary to save us. So what will solve the issue? What will solve our problem? What will solve all of this turmoil? The answer is, as it always is, Jesus Jesus is the solution. He's the solution to everything. His return is the solution. For now, as we live in this world, our best labor and our best energies are spent in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. You know the gospel, right? The gospel of salvation by grace through faith in Christ who died and rose again in order to forgive, save, and redeem and deliver all who believe in him from sin's grievous tyranny and penalty. Coupled with that, there is also coming a day when God sets the king, King Jesus, in Jerusalem, literal Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. God will set his King Jesus in Jerusalem to rule and to reign from an earthly kingdom. 
And at that time, the nations, according to Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, the nations will be his heritage. The ends of the earth will be his possession. All rebellious and stiff-necked nations, Jesus will break with a rod of iron and dash into pieces like a potter's vessel. This return of Christ the King, as he rules from his throne in Jerusalem over a kingdom that fulfills all of God's promises to Israel, along with the consequences of Israel's repentance and faith in Christ, is what we hope for and what we pray for when we say, your kingdom come. And what are the consequences? What are the results of Jesus of Israel's repentance and Christ establishing his throne in Jerusalem. What are the consequences of that? Well, we see it in Revelation chapter 7. In Revelation chapter 7, the consequence of Israel's repentance and faith in Christ leads to Israel's missionary work. And as a result of Israel's missionary work, we see this in Revelation chapter 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see that? A great multitude. A great multitude that no one can number. A great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, from all languages. This great multitude is brought about as Israel takes seriously her calling from the Lord. Her initial calling, which according to Exodus chapter 19 verse 6, is to be, a tre- to be God's treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation and to go out into the world representing God as a light to the world. This is Israel's future. And the Apostle Paul makes this clear in the book of Romans in chapter 11, verse 29, when he says, in referencing this very fact, that the gifts and the calling of God to Israel are irrevocable. Meaning that one day it is written, one day Israel will repent. They will return to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ and they will ultimately fulfill their calling as light to the nations. And let me just tell you, what a day that will be. And Paul wrote in the same chapter of Romans 11, same chapter, Romans 11, through there, listen to this, Romans 11, verse 11, he says, through there, that's Israel's trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now note the benefits here that the Apostle Paul brings up. Note the benefits that have come to us because of Israel's disobedience. What is the benefits that have come to us because of Israel's disobedience? Salvation to the Gentiles. And so Paul continues with a rather common argument by uh, Jewish leaders called the how much more argument. And he says, if these are the results of Israel's disobedience, that salvation comes to the Gentiles as a result... He continues in Romans 11, verse 12, saying, If their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
How much more? If you're reading the net version of the Bible, they use the word restoration. How much more will their full restoration mean? So when we come here this morning and we look at this phrase, your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord, right? These are petitions, as we will see again. When we pray, your kingdom come, this is what we are praying for. We are praying for this arrival of King Jesus, the establishment of his kingdom on earth in fulfillment of his, the Lord's promises to Israel, and the unparalleled riches that are brought to the world by a repentant Israel serving King Jesus according to her calling. Let me just say that again. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for the arrival of King Jesus. We are praying for the establishment of his kingdom on earth in fulfillment of the Lord's promises to Israel. We are praying for the unparalleled riches that will be brought to the world by a repentant Israel serving King Jesus according to her calling. Your kingdom come. This is, if you look at the prayer here in, Romans, or in uh, Matthew chapter 6, it's the second petition Right? It's the second petition uh, that Jesus modeled for his disciples. Now, if you recall, just a little bit of, to step back and see where we are, uh, the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray. That's how Luke records it. And in response to their request, he puts forward this exemplary framework of prayer. This prayer is a meaningful, well-thought-out, well-organized, weighty prayer. It is a prayer with no empty phrases, no frivolous or flowery words, but instead is a prayer filled with praise to and dependence upon the Lord. The blueprint here that Jesus uh, reveals is quite easy to follow and it's very well ordered. So if, we, if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you will see that there is an opening address to the Lord. You see that in verse 9, our Father in heaven. We looked at that a few weeks ago and we noted three wonderful realities in that uh, statement. First, that God is our Father in heaven, meaning that when we pray as saved people, we pray in recognition of the fact that we who believe in the Lord Jesus enjoy a unique, special, privileged relationship with God. We also learned that the phrase, uh, that we also discovered that God is our Father in heaven, right? So first is our Father in heaven. The second phrase was our Father in heaven. That term of address reveals the closeness and the affection of our relationship with God. As we come to, to the Lord in prayer, we do so in full knowledge of His tender care for us. We do so in full knowledge of His commitment to hearing our prayers, listening to our prayers, and we do so in full, com, full knowledge of His trustworthiness that as a father, He will never leave you and He will never forsake you. And finally, we heard that not only is God our Father in heaven, not only is He our Father in heaven, but we have heard that He is our Father in heaven, affirming the biblical truth that our God is transcendent, holy, high, lifted up, incomparable, matchless, without equal, and He ought to be appreciated as such by those who approach Him in prayer. That opening address, our Father in heaven, is then followed in the prayer in Matthew chapter 6 by six 
petitions, six requests that we bring to the Lord. The first three of those petitions uh, refer to the glory, the sovereignty, and the will of God, right? First one being, hallowed be your name. The second being, your kingdom come. The third being, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at hallowed be your name. We familiarized ourselves with that petition, and we learned that it's not a simple declaration as in, your name is so wonderfully holy, Lord. That should be a part of our prayers, but that's not what is happening here. It is more accurately a petition. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are actively calling upon the Lord. We are calling upon the Lord to actively hallow his own name, set apart his own name, exalt his own name. When we pray, hallowed be your name, it is our appeal to the Lord that he act to visibly demonstrate on earth his glory, his holiness, his honor, his perfections in and to the world. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are asking the Lord to glorify himself in all of his perfections. There are, is a second group of petitions. These th- next three petitions in verse... 11 and to 13, these petitions refer to everything we require to live our physical lives and spiritual lives. The first is give us this day our daily bread. The second is forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And the third is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We will be looking at all of those in due time. But when we come to the second petition of the first section, your kingdom come, What exactly are we asking for when we petition the Lord, your kingdom come? You see, the fact that Jesus told the disciples to pray for it indicates that it hadn't yet arrived. And this was a fact that Israel was all too painfully aware of as they languished under the oppressive rule of yet another empire, this time the Roman Empire. So, when we want to understand what we're talking about with the word kingdom here, uh, Dr. John MacArthur has a rather helpful overview of the kingdom as we see it unfolding in Scripture. He gives it to us in five stages. The first stage, and you might want to write all these down because they're very, very good, right? The five stages of the kingdom, and then we will situate which one we're looking at as we pray, your kingdom come. The first stage is the prophesied kingdom. The prophesied kingdom. Meaning, the kingdom as foretold and promised by the Lord through the prophets. This is what Israel groaned for. This is what Israel was desperate for. They knew the word of God. They knew that in Isaiah 24, verse 23, that the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah that the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and his glory will be before the elders. They knew this. They heard the prophet Isaiah as he groaned for the return of the Lord, that he, he groaned for the Lord to come and reign in Israel and establish them once again in Isaiah chapter 64 as they look ahead to the future when he said this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down 
that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. You see that? This is the groan of Israel. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. So this is the kingdom as prophesied to come in the future. The second stage, so the first stage is the, the prophesied kingdom. The second stage is the present kingdom. The present kingdom. This is the kingdom as offered to Israel by both John the Baptist and Jesus. This is the offering of that prophesied kingdom. Jesus and John the Baptist both burst onto the scene, starting their ministries with the very same proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this present kingdom is the kingdom at hand, or imminent. It was ready at that moment, had Israel repented, to burst forth like a dam about to break, or like sunlight cresting over the horizon at daybreak. The kingdom was there, ready, and there to come upon the repentance of the nation of Israel. However, as we know, Israel did not repent. And the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the uh, present kingdom, the offer of the kingdom at hand, is contingent upon, as we will see, the repentance of Israel. And so now we find ourselves in... The third stage, which is called the interim kingdom. Interim, I-N-T-E-R-I-M, interim kingdom. Because Israel rejected her Messiah at his first coming, because, and here's the reason, because Jesus preached repent, because for the majority of Israel, the idea that repentance was necessary for a Jew was out of the question. Jews didn't need to repent. They were simply God's people. And so the leaders refused to repent. Sure, there were a few here and there, like we see some some Jews coming when John is baptizing and they repent, but for the most part, the nation as a whole was far too proud to repent. And so instead of repenting, they secured the crucifixion of their king rather than believing in him. And we know that Christ rose from the dead, he returned to heaven, and from heaven he reigns in the hearts of those who know him as Lord right now. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are in a sense, not specifically, but in a sense, praying for the Lord's rule and reign in the hearts of people during this stage, during the interim kingdom, to be extended as we go forth into all the world preaching the gospel. That is our role right now. This is where we are right now. We find ourselves now between Israel's rejection of Christ and their future repentance and belief. So prophesied kingdom, present kingdom, interim kingdom, and the fourth is the manifest kingdom. The manifest kingdom. The manifest kingdom is the future point When Israel repents and returns to the Lord, when Christ returns to earth and establishes a kingdom where he will rule physically, directly, and fully upon the earth from his throne in Jerusalem. 
And he will do that for a thousand years. And in that thousand years, he will fulfill the totality of promises, of every promise that he made to literal Israel throughout the Old Testament. That is the manifest kingdom. We find ourselves in the interim kingdom between the rejection and the manifest. So prophesied, present, interim, manifest, and the final is the eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom is that future time when all of God's people, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile, all of us live with the Lord in perfect joy, peace, harmony, and happiness for eternity. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are, in a sense, praying for the wonderful joys that await us who believe in the eternal kingdom to arrive. But on this day, when Jesus prayed at this time, teaching his disciples, when the phrase, your kingdom come, spilt from the lips of Christ, every one of the disciples that were sitting there would have understood the same thing. Pray for the kingdom promises to Israel that are revealed in the Old Testament to come to pass. Let the kingdom at hand become the kingdom manifest on earth. Let our Messiah establish his rule in Jerusalem, liberating us, liberating Israel from all foreign power and oppression. You see, this reestablishment, this arrival of the kingdom was for every Jewish person of the day at the top of their prayer card. When we send out our prayer cards, we have a ton of prayers on those cards. For every Jewish person at this time, the number one prayer would have been, establish your kingdom, liberate Israel, send us the king. And they pleaded with the Lord day in and day out for the fulfillment of these promises, that the Lord would turn his attention to the plight of Israel and reestablish them once again as an independent kingdom in a golden era similar to that of their time under Kings David and Solomon. Now, if you just take a step back, you remember Solomon's reign, right? During Solomon's reign, Israel was unified, all 12 tribes together. Israel's king was the wisest in all of the world. And the text tells us, that people from all nations, including the kings of the earth, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And under Solomon, the house of the Lord, the temple, the wonderful, beautiful wonder of the world was constructed and completed. The text actually tells us that in 1 Kings 10, that during Solomon's reign, the people were so prosperous, the nation was so prosperous that silver was as common as stones. And during Solomon's reign, he had dominion over all of the kings west of the Euphrates and he enjoyed peace. The nation enjoyed peace on all sides and every Jew under the oppressive Roman regime at this time pleaded with the Lord for the return of those glory days. So what happened? Why is it that when we come to this, this phrase, your kingdom come, why are we told to pray your kingdom come instead of maintain your kingdom? Why are we told 
to pray for your kingdom to come. Why, why was a Jew in this day told to pray for the kingdom to come rather than it to be maintained? It's because they had lost it. And this petition here, your kingdom come, indicates a hope for a sudden, instantaneous arrival of this kingdom. This petition is an appeal to the Lord for the sudden, instantaneous arrival of the earthly kingdom over which the Messiah rules as king. But again, the question is why? Why must Israel pray for this to come as a future, sudden, instantaneous establishment? Here's the answer. It is because the Lord has reproved and disciplined His chosen people Israel. And even up to this very day, He continues to do so. And because of this fact, Christ called upon the disciples, and by extension all of us, to pray this prayer, Your kingdom come. So for us to get a fuller picture, let's just take a step back and look at some biblical history. In order to understand what we are asking for when we, when we make this petition, Your kingdom come. If you go back from, uh, into the first few books of the Bible, you will see that the Lord in His grace... The Lord, in His mercy, decided in His goodwill, purpose, and plan to set His love and His affection upon Israel. Not because they were special, not because they were more numerous than anyone else, not because they were great, but because God is gracious, God is wise, God is good, God is caring, God is tender, God is long-suffering. And He plucked Israel out from all the peoples of the world to be His chosen people. He called them to be the people that he loved with a special, unique love. He chose them to be the people through whom his name might be exalted, his name might be magnified, his name might be declared to all the world. He called them out to be a light to the world, illuminating the God who gives life to the full. And so the Lord began this wonderful work in Israel when he called a man named Abram out of Ur. And he made a number of promises to Abram. He made promises of numerous descendants. And as these descendants grew, you see that it moves from Abraham to uh, 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 the family sprouted the 70. And as they sprouted the 70, they eventually made their way to Egypt. And Egypt served as a sort of greenhouse for this fledgling 70 folks. And Exodus 1 uh, verse 7 tells us that while in Egypt, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now Egypt, noting and fearing this exponential increase of Hebrews throughout their land, set to enslaving them set to driving them into harsh and oppressive labor. And this led God to act on Israel's behalf. And so he raised up Moses. And through Moses brought strike upon strike, brought plague upon plague against Egypt and their king, as their king Pharaoh refused to release their labor and their slave labor force, which was Israel. Eventually, the Lord broke Pharaoh who couldn't take any more, and the text tells us that he drove the Israelites out of Egypt. So the Israelites eventually make it into the wilderness, and they are now a free people. 
and they're wandering in the desert, prepared to enter into the land that God has promised them. And so they, spent, they sent spies to check out that land. But due to the faithlessness of the older Israelites, those ones who, even though they had witnessed the God's strikes, God's wonders, God's plagues on, in, in Egypt, these older Israelites rallied the people against Moses. They even tried to appoint a leader to take them back to Egypt rather than forward to Canaan. And so the Lord postponed their entrance into the land by 40 years. However, the Lord in His grace continued to provide. He provided them food in the form of manna and quail. He provided them water from the rock. And what were their responses to these blessings? The idolatrous acts of creating golden calf and bowing down to it, and their continued grumbling about the provisions that the Lord had given them, and at times, even their desire to return to enslavement in Egypt. This people, right from the get-go, was seemingly unable to dedicate their all to the Lord. The Lord who loved them, the Lord who delivered them, they were unable to focus on Him, they were unable to praise Him and honor Him as He so rightly and richly deserves. And through all of this, through all of this, we see in the text that our Lord remained, our Lord remains faithful to His covenants with them because He is the faithful one. When it came time for Israel to enter into the promised land those decades later, the Lord made a conditional covenant with them, a covenant that is specifically aimed at their life in the land. We read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's a long read, so if you want to flip over there, we're going to read it together. Deuteronomy 11, after reminding the people of Israel of all that he is and all that he has been for them, reminding them of his care, Reminding them of his protection, of his provision, and his goodness, he said to them in Deuteronomy, starting at verse 8, we're going to go to 17, he said these words, You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess. And that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to to their offspring. A land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come. Where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys. Which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. That's an important line. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginnings of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. 
Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So you see, the peoples of Israel, in the face of some pretty stellar rewards for obedience and faithfulness, in the face of some pretty terrifying curses for disobedience, quickly turned to idolatry. Kindling the anger of the Lord, kindling the curses of the covenant that the Lord had set against them here. And the Hebrew peoples consistently throughout their history faced droughts, faced famines, and eventually endured the final curse, perishing off the land in exile. First, Israel, the ten tribes, at the hands of the Assyrians in 722 BC, and then a, a couple hundred years later, under about a couple hundred years later, in 586 BC, the remaining Israelites in Judah were carted off by the Babylonians. The Lord was angry with his people. And yet, even so, in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their idolatry, he showed mercy. He showed mercy by sending prophets to them, prophet after prophet after prophet, and whose sole mission was the calling of the people to repentance and renewed obedience to the Lord. The prophets called the people to keep their end of the covenant. And if they did, when they do, the Lord would, the Lord will, even after all their failure, maintain them, bless them, and return to them. And so the prophets, one after another, came preaching and proclaiming the same message. Repent! Turn from your sin! Return to the Lord! His arms are open wide. He's ready to gather you up into His arms again. But know this, if you refuse, if you remain in your rebellion, the curses of Deuteronomy, the perishing off the land, it's coming! Repent! Return! The message of the Lord to his people, Israel, has never changed. Even to this very day, the Lord declares this message to Israel through the prophet Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me, and I will return to you. So when we pray, your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord to bring about the repentance of Israel. We are petitioning the Lord to bring about their return to the Lord. And this is not a new message. It's the same message that the Lord has continually held out to His people all along. A message continually repeated to them. Renounce your rebellion. Renounce your disobedience. Turn from your idolatries in all their forms and submit to the rule of God. Enter into a right relationship with Him and bless the world. This is the message of all the prophets. And this is the prayer we bring to the Lord when we say, your kingdom come. We see, for example, through the prophet Jeremiah, this appeal. When the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, said this, or the Lord through Jeremiah said, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. Only acknowledge your guilt that you have rebelled against the Lord and scattered your favors among the foreigners under every green tree and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord. 
For I am your master, I will take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. While many have sensational views of the prophets, the prophets' primary and foundational mission and message was simple and plain. Repent. And this mission carried over even into the New Testament as both John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ began their public ministries with the same cry that the prophets had always been preaching to Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look at Matthew 3.2. Look at Matthew 4.17. These are the first words in both of their public ministries. This manifest kingdom is what we are praying for. The kingdom long promised to Israel is ready to burst onto the scene. The dam is having a hard time holding. It's right there. The Lord stands at the ready to pardon and give Israel the kingdom to Israel upon their repentance. It's right there. It's at hand. It's so close. Repent and it's yours. Repent and you will, Israel, be gathered like a hen gathers her chicks. Now, as an aside, this is all a part of God's divine plan. As Jesus came preaching the nearness and the readiness of the kingdom to come, not through the military might of the Messiah, which is what the people of Israel were expecting. They were expecting a military Messiah to rise up and lead a charge. Not upon the strength of the nation's military, but rather in response to the nation's repentance, At the very same time, the Lord is at work bringing what the Apostle Paul terms in Romans 11.25, a partial hardening upon Israel. And this until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Romans 11.25. In the good and wise plan of God, he has consigned Israel for a time to disobedience, in order to ensure the grafting in of the Gentiles. So when you are praying your kingdom come, you are by extension, maybe not specifically and directly, but by extension, praying for the salvation of the fullness of the Gentiles during this interim period. This is one of the reasons for our Lord's usage of the parables in the New Testament. When the disciples asked Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why do you use parables as your primary teaching method? The answer might surprise you. In Matthew 13, he said, To you, this is to the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, the Jewish crowds and the leaders, it has not been given. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they would see with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Israel's rejection of the Messiah, uh, of the kingdom offered to them by their Messiah, came about as, Israel, as Isaiah had prophesied it would. That they would hear with, they heard the words with their ears, but they did not with their hearts. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ, they saw the person of Jesus, but they did not truly see him. 
because they have closed their eyes, they have shut up their ears, they have hardened their hearts, all in fulfillment of the word of God through Isaiah. And all of this in order to bring in the fullness of God's children. All who in God's saving love were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. All who were predestined for adoption to sonship, uh, all who were predestined to be adopted to himself as sons and daughters through our Lord Jesus Christ to the purpose or to the praise of his glorious grace. Some have assumed that this means God has rejected Israel forever. Has God rejected Israel forever? The answer to that is no, and may it never be. God has not rejected his people. Isaiah also prophesied in 45, chapter 45, verse 17, Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Now, you might be asking yourself a very legitimate question right now. Why? Why has God laid out his plan of salvation in such a way? That John and Jesus both come preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is at, it's ready to come, now repent. But at the same time, God has brought about and maintains a partial hardening on Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. And then Israel will come to repentance, and in this way all Israel will be saved. Both Abraham's spiritual offspring as well as his physical offspring. Even Paul, that's a good question. Because even Paul, as he was mapping this whole thing out in Romans 9 to 11, you want to get it out? You want to understand it? Go to Romans 9 to 11. He understood that God's reasons for doing things as he does is sometimes above his pay grade. And he ends this section of trying to explain to us the workings of God in terms of Israel and why he would do it this way by extolling God's magnificent wisdom in accomplishing salvation the way that he does. This is one of my favorite texts in all scripture. Every time I read it, I am put in my place and reminded of my dependence upon the Lord for all things. I'm reminded of my place as a man of mere dust. I'm reminded I am no one to speak back to God or, to, or, or assume to counsel him about his plans. Here, Paul as he sums up this discussion on Israel's plan and his plan of salvation with Israel, starting in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How inscrutable his ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Stepping back for the disciples, however, on this day, hearing Jesus um, tell them to pray for the arrival of the kingdom, a flood of ideas, a flood of specific promises made by God to Israel came to mind. And one of the great portions of Scripture from which to understand these, uh, some of these promises is the uh, prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah, the man was one of the first group of returnees to Jerusalem during the reign of King Cyrus of Persia. You see, during that time, kings, when they would take over other nations, all had differing ways of dealing with the peoples that they had taken over. Cyrus differed from the Babylonians in that the Babylonians, when they would, they would take over someone, they'd take the people from their land and they'd scatter them throughout the empire. But Cyrus and the Persians 
overtook Babylon, and when they did, their system was that they allowed people to return to their homelands and start to rebuild things because they thought, you know what, the happiness of the people is better for the kingdom. And so the Jews were allowed to return to Jerusalem after a 70-year exile to start rebuilding their city and rebuilding their temple. And for a time, the people jubilantly returned home and they started to rebuild the temple only to see it halted as adversaries rose up and discouraged those, the rebuilding efforts, bribing the city officials and frustrating the work. And this led to a 20-year stoppage. This is the people to whom Zechariah spoke. A dispirited people who returned home to Jerusalem in ruins and lived there as decades passed and it remained in ruins. And the people would survey the state of their homeland and they would contrast what they saw with the declarations of the prophets. The promises of stunning restoration. For example, Zephaniah who is the last prophet before Israel went into exile, foretold this in 320. At that time, I, the Lord, will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The situation that these, these returnees came back to fell far short of those lofty promises far short of the glory days under Solomon, far short of the, res, the renown and praise among the peoples of the earth. And even after they had completed the temple, they worked on the temple, they got it going. Even after the Lord through the prophet Haggai had declared in chapter 2, verse 9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. But when those who had seen the first temple, Solomon's temple, laid their eyes on the foundations of the second temple, Ezra tells us in chapter 3, verse 12, that they wept with a loud voice. Why? Because it's so paled in comparison to the first. It is to these disillusioned, sorrow-filled returnees to Jerusalem, gazing at the ruins of their once glorious capital city to whom Zechariah prophesied calling on them to return to the Lord because the promises made by the Lord through the earlier prophets still stand. Your God remains faithful to his word. You might be under the rule of a foreign king now. You might not think the Lord makes good on his word, but he does, he will. And this is what we pray for when we make the petition, your kingdom come. So hear the prophetic word of Zechariah in chapter 1, verse 16, 17, 16 and 17, in reference to Jerusalem. It says this, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be rebuilt in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So in this text, we see the Lord make five promises concerning Jerusalem. Promises that will only come to pass when your kingdom come. 
So when we pray to the Lord, your kingdom come, we are in essence asking the Lord to work out these and many more promises that God has made to Israel. Promises that reveal God's faithfulness. Promises that bring about the repentance of Israel. Promises that will bless the whole world. So look at Zechariah. Just open it up there if you're in Zechariah. I know your Bible just falls open to Zechariah. But Zechariah chapter 1 verse 16, the first promise that the Lord makes there is that I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. When we pray your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord to return to Jerusalem with mercy, which also, because the return of the Lord is contingent upon their, Israel's return to the Lord, is a prayer for Israel's salvation. And in Hebrew, there is a writing technique or a literary technique that is commonly employed called the prophetic perfect tense. And that's the tense that's used here. The prophetic perfect tense describes a future event that is so absolutely certain that it is referred to in the past tense as though it has already come to pass. The phrase, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, is in the prophetic perfect It is a future state that is so sure that they speak of it as though it is a past event. The Lord will, with absolute certainty, return to Jerusalem with mercy at a future time in response to Jerusalem's return to himself. When we pray, your kingdom come, we pray for Israel's repentance and the return of the Lord to Jerusalem and the ultimate blessing of the world. The second thing we see in Zechariah 1.16 is that the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord to bring about the day when the vision of Ezekiel in chapters 40 to 48 of a renewed and completely rebuilt Jerusalem right down to the exact measurements will become a reality. On that day, Jerusalem will one day again be the great city again. As Israel returns to the Lord and the people break out the power tools. The third thing we see is in verse 17, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. When we pray your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord to bring about the day when as a result of Israel's repentance, Jerusalem's prosperity is so abundant that everybody around her is blessed as her abundance flows over the city walls. These are the blessings to the world. Number four, we see the Lord will again comfort Zion. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are petitioning the Lord to comfort his people Israel. This will come about when they return to the Lord through belief in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The one who is, according to Luke 2.25, the consolation of Israel. Consolation here means the comfort, the one who consoles, the one who lifts the spirit of another. Jesus is the comfort. Jesus is the the consoler of Israel, and we pray for their return to him. And fifthly, we pray, we see the the Lord will again choose Jerusalem in verse 17. Why comfort Jerusalem? Why comfort Zion? Why choose Jerusalem again? And this is it. Because the faithful love of God is one of his most tremendous attributes revealed in Scripture. The Lord does not, the Lord will never, ever let go of his children. Whether this is his covenant people, Israel, or whether it is you who are truly saved, the Lord will never let his people go. Those who are truly saved by grace through faith in Christ 
We are held in the hands of a faithful God. He said as much to Israel in Deuteronomy, saying, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And the New Testament takes this a step further as the Apostle Paul wrote, The saying is trustworthy, 2 Timothy 2. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his attribute of faithfulness. And so as the Lord, through Zechariah, assured the returning exiles that he had not, that he has not forsaken them, yes, they were sent into exile for a time as discipline for their rebellious ways, but God waited for them. God brought them out. God will choose them again. And this because God never forsakes any of his children. He never leaves nor forsakes any of his elect children. And this attribute of God's unrelenting faithfulness on the part of the Lord is not just Israel's consolation, but it is ours as well. It is our comfort that we who trust in Christ can rest in his never-let-go attribute of faithfulness. So when we pray, your kingdom come, We are praying that the Lord will exhibit his faithfulness, this attribute of faithfulness in choosing Jerusalem once again. There is coming a day when Jerusalem, the renewed and prosperous city, will be a model to and for the world of God's favor, his affection, his faithfulness, his redemption. And as the Jewish peoples come to the saving knowledge of Christ, they will offer that salvation to the world. And this is ultimately all fulfilled with the second coming of Christ when he sets up what we call his millennial kingdom on earth and reigns from Jerusalem. These words comforted the returning exiles and spurred on the rebuilding efforts as they awaited and as Israel continues to wait for the fulfillment of these promises. And in closing, the establishment of the kingdom in Jerusalem will lead to an abundance of riches for the world as people flood to faith in Christ, as the nations flood to Jesus in faith, as Israel preaches him in all places. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying for, we are anticipating the scene in heaven we mentioned earlier the consequence of Israel's repentance and faith in Christ for salvation. Remember it, Revelation 7, the scene of a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes, all peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and, our la- and to the Lamb. What can be better than that? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Come, Lord Jesus, reign as king in Jerusalem. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. And we plead with you now to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles and bring repentance to your people, Israel. We pray for the abundant blessings and the abundant mercies that will flow to the nations as a result. And we pray that your attribute of faithfulness and patience and love and long-suffering would all be so clearly displayed in your people. We pray right now, Lord. Your kingdom come. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Israel's Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.